Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, and welcome to another podcast brought to you by the Dementia Researcher website. I'm Adam Smith, and I'm delighted to host this podcast this week, uh, discussing the very important topic of PhD supervision. So this week's show is called, and it's a snappy title I came up with myself, How to Get the Super in Supervisor and What to Do When They Aren't. Um, the last time we recorded a podcast about PhD supervisors was back in 2018, and the panelists from that show all reported that they had great supervisors uh, who were supportive and available and caring and professional and passionate and compassionate and in this show, we're going to discuss uh, what it is like when that relationship is less than perfect, and also hopefully give you some tips on what you can do about it. Um, it's time that I've gone to in- introductions of this week's guest. So I'm joined by Dr. Uh, Prina Sabni. Did I get your name right? Prina Sabni, close enough. <laughs> Sabnis. <laughs> Prina Sabnis, uh, who uh, completed her PhD at the University of Trento in Italy and uh, Macquarie University in Australia. Spread out somewhat there. Uh, um, uh, Prina is a cognitive neuropsychologist whose research is focused on language comprehension. She also is passionate about destigmatizing mental health conditions, particularly in dementia, and is on the hunt for a job right now. So if anybody's looking for somebody to work in science communications, you uh, know where to look. Details on uh, Prina's uh, profile will be available on our website. Our next guest has been on the show a couple of times before, so welcome back to Dr. Claire Lancaster. Claire is an Alzheimer's Society Research Fellow at the University of Sussex, and Claire's research investigates the cognitive consequences of brain overactivity in healthy carriers of the APOE 4G. Hello, Claire. Hello. And uh, finally, we have uh, Barbara. Um, hello, Barbara. Hello. <laughs> Thank you very much for uh, finding time to join to us. Um, uh, we have most of the world covered here, um, and time zones are tricky. So, Barbara, I, because I didn't write an introduction because uh, you joined our panel late today, could I ask you to introduce yourself? It's Dr. Barbara Bush. <laughs> um, my research interests uh, have been in nationalism. Uh, specifically the relationship between materiality and nationalism and the way that people personalize the uh, identity of a nation state through materiality, um, nostalgia, memory, but primarily through materiality. But right now I am at Big Bend Community College in the little town of Moses Lake, Washington, where I am a tenure track professor and I'm also the head of the communication studies department. And it's fantastic to have somebody who's got uh, somebody who isn't necessarily working in dementia on the show, because I think particularly with this topic, that some of the issues that uh, dementia researchers will face are the same no matter what your chosen area of research. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Barbara, Claire and Prina. Uh, it's great to have you on the show. Um, I'm rubbished at keeping podcasts to time, and this is a rather big topic, so I'm going to go skip, skip the usual introductions and dive right into the questions. Um, without going into details at this stage, um, I'm just going to ask each of you, did you have good relationships with your supervisors? Go on, Claire, you go first. Yeah, I had a really, really good relationship with my supervisors. Um, so I think their kind of support really complemented each other. 
and it's probably one of the reasons I'm still in academia now. Um, positive. Um, what about you, Prina? Yeah, um, I had a good. I had a really good relationship with one of my supervisors, and I had an almost good relationship with my other supervisor. Um, so overall, it was a good experience, but there were definitely some bumps along the way. Thank you very much, um, Barbara. Uh, the relationship with my advisor was, shall we say, very complicated. Uh, personally, I've absolutely been able to maintain um, a relationship that is uh, friendly, uh, but professionally, it was a disaster. I won't say toxic because it wasn't even that close, um, but it, it wasn't much. There was no super and supervisor. There was no super. No. And well, I think this is a good representative panel then, because we've got obviously Claire, who's had uh, a good experience and Prina you're kind of somewhere in the middle and Barbara you seem to be perhaps toward the <laughs> other end of the spectrum there uh, and it's good we always like to have a balanced view so I thought we'd maybe start by trying to determine what good looks like because I think particularly when you're doing a PhD um, you don't necessarily know your supervisor although of course many people progress with the same supervisor from their MSc and it's somebody they know who goes on, but often they don't. And I think uh, also as well, you don't necessarily know that your relationship isn't great or they aren't the best of supervisors um, because you don't know what others are like. Um, so what makes a great PhD supervisor? I think this is important. You don't always know what they're like. Um, so Claire, maybe if I could come to you first, what... You said yours was good. So what, what made your supervisor good? Why are you still in academia inspired by them? In, no names, of course. Um, so I spent a bit of time thinking about this because it's really kind of difficult to pin down what makes somebody a good supervisor. Um, and I think one of the most important things is time. And so when your supervisor has time for you and actually kind of listens to your ideas, even if you kind of go to them and you're like, this is a really stupid idea and I'm not sure it will work. If they actually take the time to kind of listen to you, um, I think that's really kind of important for helping you develop your research. Um, and I think having a comfortable relationship, um, so it's not just kind of always work-based, like if they actually take an interest in your kind of well-being and make sure, um, so, for example, I have a really bad habit of emailing people at five in the morning and sometimes my supervisor would message back and be like, kind of get some rest um, sort of thing. And I think that makes a big difference as well. Um, yeah, and I think it's good if they have like a genuine interest in your research area. Um, so rather than it kind of being like a side project and they're just kind of paid to kind of supervise you because they have to if it's actually something they're really kind of interested in and they're interested in your outcomes and your methods, I think that's really good for them being able to give you kind of good, solid advice. Thank you. Yeah, I think all important points. So mixed time, somebody you feel comfortable with, somebody who um, is more in, is interested in you in the round, kind of in your well-being as well. What, what about you, Prina? Yeah, I think, um, I think I agree with everything Claire said. Um, I think three, two of the things that would be most important to me would be my supervisor's time and how willing they are to be actually present and um, in listening to and discussing ideas. 
um, secondly, how, um, I guess, how attentive they are to you as, as, as just people and not necessarily your bosses or your academic supervisors. So how attentive they are to your, I guess, mental health or physical health in general. And I think the third thing that I found was really important to me in my supervisors were also to some extent how uh, proactive they were. I mean, there were some times when I would go into meetings and it would just be me talking about, oh, hey, you know what? I read this, I read this, I read this with um, not a lot of feedback. Um, but there were other meetings when I would have uh, my supervisor who's sort of given it some thought beforehand and we've had a chance to sort of actually make something, to actually get something productive out of the meeting rather than it being like, I'm just going to use you as a board where I come and throw stuff at and then I go back without any any interest or feedback from you. So yeah, I think the proactivity, proactiveness, uh, basically a proactive supervisor is really helpful. Yeah, I would agree. And I guess that partly comes down to perhaps how many other people they supervise, what their own day job is like, because quite mm -hmm. often this, I guess there's different dynamics here as opposed to somebody who's doing their PhD that's aligned to their supervisor's own research or whether mm -hmm. they, you know, they are purely supervising alongside other teaching responsibilities and things like mm -hmm. that as to how much interest they take in, in you. Yeah. What about uh, what about you, Barbara? Uh, obviously, you, I mean, I know you mentioned that yours was a particularly difficult relationship but were there some standout parts of that that were good or did you did you have you did you make a transition and see what was going on elsewhere what what was it you didn't get that for relationship that would have made it better I guess I'll transition from the good to the bad since we've been talking about the good I think uh the good for me uh in the standout part of the relationship was that uh I learned to um, I learned to be compassionate towards uh, my supervisor. I, I became hyper aware of all of his other commitments, which he did have a lot because he was popular in the department. Uh, he's uh, fairly well known. Um, so I, I, and, 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 and I think I think he was aware I was sensitive to that. So maybe but it just in small, short conversations about that. Um, so that's maybe the standout part for me. That's, uh, that's an awareness, not necessarily anything that really made our relationship better, but something that was good for me to, to notice. Um, I've had good supervisors and good advisors uh, in my master's program. I went to a terminal master's program and then got my PhD elsewhere. So I do know what a good, a committee chair or advisor looks like. I had that in my master's. Um, what wasn't good was his lack of interest. And what I would say is part of it is he was brand new to the department. Uh, he came in as a shining star and um, didn't have any advisees. I was automatically assigned to him. And I didn't think uh, it was important. To, one, I actually did try to separate myself from him because I thought our research was too different. And he, he, he sounded very eager to keep me. And what I, looking back now, I realize that's because he didn't really have anybody yet. So what didn't stand out, it was, what stood out was his lack of interest. As Claire has mentioned, 
um, it, you know, you really want somebody who's interested in what you do, interested in your methods and so forth. And he really wasn't. Um, he wasn't interested in what I had to do. And right. yes. Well, and I, I suppose actually this kind of makes the point is, is that somebody who is a good supervisor for one person might not be the best supervisor for somebody else. But although a good supervisor would probably recognize that and talk about it and, right. and compensate or suggest a colleague or taking on a second supervisor rather than kind of, you know, double down on, on keeping me, they would yeah. recognize the issue themselves without you need right. to do it. Right. And that, and I think that, and then in addition to that, a bad supervisor has a big ego, which we know in academia exists, but a temperament and an ego that if you let that person go, which other people had uh, let him go, caused them a lot of um, turmoil in the department um, because of the relationships among the uh, faculty themselves. So that person told me, do not, do not kick him off your committee. You'll be sorry. Okay, um, let, let's come back so, because yeah, I, we're yeah, going to go into some true. of the problems behind. I want to recap. Okay, I was thinking of... bad supervisor. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> what makes a good one? So okay. we sorry, sorry. said somebody who makes time, uh, yes. somebody who is comfortable and needs to get on with, takes an interest in you and your well-being, um, takes time to also provide proper, well-thought-through feedback. feedback. We've all seen that, haven't we? Those kind of documents where you can tell somebody's not even necessarily read them after you've given your chapters <laughs> in for a look. Um, the Discovery PhD website defined a good PhD supervisor as someone with a track record of supervising PhD students through to completion, has a strong publication record, and is active in their research field, has sufficient time to provide adequate supervision, and is genuinely interested in your subject, and can provide you with mentorship, and has a supportive personality. I I don't disagree with that, but I think it is a rather simplistic view. I think first-time supervisor isn't necessarily uh, a bad one, for example. So if they don't necessarily have a track record of seeing somebody through to supervision, I think a first-time supervisor could be great because they could, you know, be working really hard and want to make a, a success of it. So I think that is a bit of a simple, a simplistic view. Um, uh, but Sometimes you'll apply for a ready-made PhD funding post and the supervisor and the PhD are part of the deal and you you don't really get to, to choose. I, I think this differs perhaps from country to country. And other times you'll bring your funding and you'll search for the person you want. That means you don't always get a, a choice and it means you have a better opportunity if you're bringing your funding to them to, to think who will be the best person who will work for you um, so that kind of definition uh, if you like of what makes a good supervisor it's a tricky one because if you're applying for a ready-made job and you've read that description are you really not gonna apply or quite often you won't know until it's too late and you you've already had the the offer and it's quite tricky to turn down a PhD offer um, if you're just slightly uncertain about the supervisor once you've got to that point I, I think um, but that's, that's what the definition of a good supervisor is, according to the internet and the career websites I could I did some reading around on. Um, next, I want to move into talking a bit more in detail about your own experiences and discuss some of the problems that you faced. Because I think one of the real, when I put something out on social media to say we were going to be talking about this topic, what 
um, I was rather saddened to read was the number of messages I got back from people talking about their problems, but who didn't want to talk about them publicly, didn't want to share their names, but they did want to share their issues. And so I think it's important that if we have had problems, we do talk about them um, in this kind of safe way to make others out there who are listening to this realize that they're not alone in some of the challenges that they might be facing. And maybe we can suggest a few strategies that you all devised to help manage the situations and go through some of those problems that we face. So maybe um, Barbara, we started on, on, on this with, with you. Um, so could you maybe talk a bit about, about your difficulties and, and where you turned to when you faced this, these problems? Yeah, so I, I want to reiterate um, what you said. You're not alone if you're listening to this and, and you're having difficulties with a PI or a, an advisor. Um, <clears throat> I had some really great uh, uh, grad fellow grad students who were super supportive. So they were my supers. I would turn to them for feedback. Uh, again, sometimes I would get feedback from my advisor, but again, that's sort of very cursory uh, feedback that clearly didn't do anything substantive for what I was um, trying to, to write about. And my grad, my fellow grad students really did that. Of course, this puts a burden on fellow grad students because they're doing their own research. Um, but I happen to be able to spread out that uh, burden a little bit among friends. So I did turn to them. I also think um, the difficulty was just in having meaningless meetings with my um, advisor when I could pin him down. Sometimes I wouldn't hear back from him for four months, which really lengthens the uh, time you get your PhD done. And here in the United States, I know in the UK, for example, it takes a lot less time. But here I was in my PhD program from 2008 to 2017, in part because of the lack of responsiveness from my advisor, um, because I didn't know what to do when he wouldn't respond time and time again. So um, what I ended up doing towards the end, I really just pushed myself is I wrote a lot on my own um, and uh, realized that at the end of the day, that this is what I needed to do and just get it done. Um, so there's that independence, having that sort of self-reliance. Um, now, granted, I'd done a master's, so I'd written a thesis, so I kind of knew the, the drill as far as writing a longer paper. Um, though this was substantively longer than the other paper. Um, so I, I would just force myself to write. And then I, I had one other outside committee member. This was another thing. It was a built-in strategy. It's not one I thought of myself. I don't know how other universities do it. We had to have one outside member uh, from our department. And I, mine was in history because mine was uh, including the history of Switzerland and nationalism. And um, he was helpful. Uh, not as helpful as a, as a super, supervisor might be, but he was helpful. So I was able to lean on him a little bit, though you do need to be careful with that. Um, so those were my strategies and uh, just, just kept my head down and kept writing um, and finding those resources among my fellow grad students. So was the main problem you faced there, was it, was it purely down to, I mean, because again, I mentioned before, uh, but was this an absence? Was this their kind of disinterest towards you and your work and an absence and never responding? Or was there something underlying that, do you think? I think it's a combination of things. It was an absence. Um, there was uh, an, a lack of interest. Um, 
And in part, the absence had to do with his own in the in the year that bef- from the time that I had acquired him as an assigned supervisor to the time that I was, you know, in the depths of working on my dissertation, he had become quite popular. So he also had a lot of advisees. Um, and I think there was some kind of underlying issue that I've never put a finger on because he, after I graduated, has never stopped contacting me. I've heard more from him since I've graduated than I ever did during the PhD program. Um, the irony of that is that it's going to be frustrating. It's so frustrating. Absence is a, is a common one. And in fact, it's on my list of things to talk about later on to say, how do you deal with that absent uh, supervisor? I, I was talking to somebody offline a couple of weeks ago that had exactly the same experience where they'd, they'd send something in and they wouldn't get responses back. Um, and then trying to under, understand where that, you know, where that absence, why that was. And I think in that particular instance, the supervisor was, as we mentioned earlier, was was new to the post. But that's never a, an excuse for just not replying to emails. They were busy, but they were new to the post. This was the first person they'd ever supervised. But um, I don't know if that meant... I, I can never quite understand why though somebody wouldn't at least respond. Or, or well, what I was going to add is, and I did attempt actually twice, I meant to mention that, I meant, attempted twice to change him. Initially, in the beginning, just because I thought my research wasn't it just didn't seem to match up with what he would be interested in. And he convinced me otherwise. But then the second time when I was a little bit further along, I, tr- I attempted that again. And he, I remember very clearly I was in his office. He said, why are you taking, turning a mount- an anthill into a, a mountain or whatever his little saying was. And I just, I said, well, I just want to make, I don't, and I didn't know what to do because I had this other grad student who had gotten rid of him and said, don't do this. Um, I, I saw his, his temper, his sort of, resistance flare up and I just stopped. I said, okay, well, as long as we're okay. And as long as you're interested and you think we should keep moving forward, that's fine, but I can get another chair for the committee. Um, and that was, an, and I tried to co-chair. Some people do co-chair that's as well. I, I was told that's an absolute no-go um, from both him and the person who I wanted to have as a co-chair. She said, I won't co-chair with him. He's not responsive. So I wonder then why somebody would be absent. I guess it's either because they're busy <laughs> or they're perhaps not very interested in what you're doing or just have a general lack of respect, perhaps, which isn't a very nice thing to do. Um, why else? I don't know, Prina, what, why, why, uh, what reasons could we ever think of that? Why a Because, of course, I think if you're going to work out how to address it, you've got to understand what the underlying cause is of... Yeah, I think, I mean... I think one of the big things that could possibly be responsible for absences is just bad time management. I think a lot of um, PhD students are really excited to work with supervisors who are extremely experienced or high up in the ranks and, you know, are the biggest people in their field. But often what that coincides with is these supervisors being on multiple committees, multiple, you know, editorial boards, multiple teaching responsibilities and administrative tasks. And I think the one common theme that I've noticed with um, my peers, my friends, people who've done PhDs before me, after me, has been that a lot of times priorities change for supervisors. And I think 
the actual supervision of a student takes a back seat at some point because they're too busy, you know, either reviewing other papers or trying to figure out how to get new funding for for their lab. Um, and I think your papers and your thesis and your meetings just sort of get stuck very low in the pile. So maybe it could be that. Maybe so time time management. What what do you think, Claire? I think it kind of feeds into that. I'd say like if the student isn't perhaps as high up their priority list, um, if they're really stressed, I think from an outsider it's like easy to say like your student should be one of your kind of top priorities. But when you've got all these other like pressures coming in, I can imagine it would be easy to just kind of say, oh, I'll meet them next week or I'll meet them next week. Um, so strategies to deal with this then. I mean, that I mean, this is straight out of the textbook. I mean, this this first issue of absence is usually the one of the biggest complaints of of PhD students of supervisors is that kind of lack of response, um, no apparent interest in the work. I guess strategies to deal with this, the common ones that you'd take straight out of the book are from the outset to have a regular meeting in the diary. Right from the from the get go, whether that's you know at a frequency that you both think is agreeable to to you, being as flexible as you can maybe, but you know in terms of if they work in the mornings or they work later in the evenings, this isn't to say oh you should you know work every night because they work until ten o'clock and that's the only time they can see you because that's you know there's got to be flexibility on both sides. But I think mm -hmm. showing some flexibility, regular meeting in the diary. Um, putting deadlines on things. I know it sounds awful. And then if it, if things have been allowed to lapse, if they have a if they have an assistant, maybe you can go via them. Mm -hmm. um, is there something to be said for just literally turning up and knocking on their door? I mean, are we just <laughs> too afraid to do that? Do we do we doorstop them and just kind of go stand outside, knock, and say, "Hi, I need to talk to you about something." I mean, do you know what, Adam, I've, uh, in my PhD, I've been kind of fortunate in that I've worked in many different um, cultural setups. And I think one of the differences I noticed was that some cultures in general are more open to having open doors where they're okay with students just going in and knocking on their doors and saying, hey, I just need to chat with you for like literally a quick minute. Wow. Um, but in other places, you have to schedule meetings beforehand and it's yeah. not very, maybe not polite, but maybe it's just not acceptable. Maybe it's not the professional way of doing things. And it's a very thin line to cross and tiptoe around. Um, but also I think there needs to be a bit of a, systemic change there needs to be some sort of accountability um, I think one of my universities had a requirement that the university has to the student has to meet with their supervisor a minimum of I don't know 25 times in three years or something like that um, and if you are not sort of keeping up with that so if you're not having say about seven eight meetings a year you actually have a chance to bring it up with the external bodies and say, hey, you know what, I'm actually writing to my supervisor every week, but they just don't have any time for me. How do we address it? So I don't think all the responsibility can just be with the supervisor or with the student. There needs to be a bit more cohesion and a bit more effort from the system as well. 
So I think I think there is something here about the reverence thing, isn't there? Because you're right about that kind of, oh, you know, you can't see them without a meeting or I, mm-hmm. I'd never just turn up and knock on their door. And I think that you, that is so personal. I think it depends on the individual and and how they perceive themselves and their relationship with students. And if if they are one of those those kind of people, I think there are and also as well, it depends on the you know, on the PhD student, are you the kind of person that will face this head on when you have things have lapsed and you have got to a point where you're not talking? Do you just put your head down and try to ignore it and talk to other people instead and just work around it? Or do you try and tackle it? And I think it depends on the person you're supervised by. Would you, would if they were going to tackle it, Claire, how, do, how would you go about it? So let me give you a scenario. PhD student, end of your first year, you've only spoken to your supervisor five, six times over the course of the year. They always take two weeks to reply to emails. And when they do, they're not very helpful. What would you do in that situation, do you think? I think in an ideal situation, um, it would be good to kind of have a frank conversation with the supervisor and say like, this is kind of what I expect from you. These are kind of the problems I think we're having. What can we do about it? And I wouldn't like kind of say like, you're letting me down because you're doing this, this and this and I don't like it. I'd try and make it more like um, like a team effort. But I know it can be really difficult if your supervisor is scary or you're a shy kind of person who doesn't like confrontation. Um, I think like another thing I'd personally do um, would be like, think about is there a kind of a second person you can go to who you feel comfortable talking to about it? Like I know when I did my PhD, we had kind of somebody who was in the same research area who checked in with us once a year, who we could talk to. And we also had like the head of the doctoral who we could go to and they were both super approachable. And I think making sure if universities can make sure they have people like this and these people are clearly signposted. I think that helps. I spoke to somebody the other week that had this same problem. When we, we were talking about strategies to try and deal with this. And we did talk about finding another, another, another reason to kind of try to kick off a conversation. So in this instance, it was a good time at this time of year. Um, it's a good time to say, hey, we're going into 2021 I realize we've not had a lot of time to work together this year. I, I'd like to kick off the new year with a good start. Could we put in a regular meeting in the diary? And if somebody doesn't re- I, I maybe copy somebody else in to slightly shame them into replying, perhaps. Um, I think in this instance, we talked about it been going on a long time and we talked about other potential workarounds, which I think will come to in some of the other issues we're going to talk around about taking on a second, suggesting a second supervisor, for example. Um, um, but I think it depends on circumstances. So maybe an, an excuse to contact them talking about resetting, not blaming them if they haven't been responding, but kind of instead just talking about the situation rather than saying you've not responded to me recently the careful use of language because I think that could also get them defensive and then they just don't reply um let's let's can we move on to some of the other issues because I'm conscious uh, of time uh Prina I'm going to come to you because you said 
you had a great relationship with one supervisor and not so much with the other one. What mm-hmm. what were the problems with your second supervisor? Well, I think when things started out, they were all um, hunky-dory and, you know, working styles matched and everything was great. But along the way, I had um, my PhD slowed down quite a bit because of a lot of personal issues. And um, initially, my supervisor responded with a lot of support. But as time went on, I think I started feeling a sense of, um, how do I put this? I started being made to feel like I was taking him for granted, not doing things, asking him to do all the work for me, even though I was actually literally going off of whatever resources he had given me or whatever information he had given me. And keep in mind, I don't mean I was slow in writing a paper because I didn't know how to do an analysis. I'm talking about moving continents, like I mentioned with my PhD. Um, You know, multiple, my mom was um, terminally ill at that point. And there were a whole bunch of um, mental health issues in at play and at some point my supervisor said to me you know what I've done so much for you if any other student knew how much I'd done for you they would kill me and I was like hold on this is not my responsibility or my fault if you have at any point felt like I'm not doing enough as a student or that you're giving me too much of a leeway this is something that you should have as an experienced supervisor brought up with me earlier on. You don't get to blame me um, saying I'm not doing things even when I'm following the timeline that you and I agreed upon. Um, There were, I mean, from a person who would respond to me in a matter of 24 hours, he went to someone who wouldn't respond for three months so at some point when I was trying to complete... Like they were almost punishing, like this was your yeah. punishment in somehow. They were blaming you. Yeah. And I wasn't sure if it was an intentional thing or an unintentional thing, but I realized that the way I could get around it was, luckily I had another supervisor who was extremely supportive with whom I could have a frank conversation who could sort of, who kind of acted as the mediator between us when things weren't going great. Um, And I think if any PhD student has similar issues with their supervisor and they have the opportunity of finding an external person in the department or, you know, an oversight committee member or whatever the equivalent is at the university, then bringing in a third person, an outsider who might be able to mediate that gap or bridge that gap might be um, might be a good solution. Uh, and I think I think there are two issues there that you raise. I think the first of all is how a supervisor responds when you do have problems, you know, elsewhere in your life, mm-hmm. and how they how they respond to being supportive and and helping you and encouraging you still. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I know people who who don't take days off stick and kind of, you know, clearly hold a grudge to people who do or think, oh, you're slackers if you ever have a day off with a with a cold. Um, so I think there's there's how somebody supports you during 
crisis or, or during other periods of difficulty in life. And then there's that second one about somebody who feels like they're doing too much for you. Yeah, but for me, that that is probably they're the bad supervisor for not supporting you to enable you to do the work rather than. Yeah. And that brings up a separate issue we'll come to about being overbearing. But mm-hmm. um, I mean, in hindsight, what would you what would you do? Would you do anything differently? I mean, you got through your you finished. Do you know what? I actually don't know if I would do too many things differently because I think the one thing that I was told right at the beginning when I started my PhD by people who had been in, uh, who'd done their PhDs before was that if there is an issue, bring it up immediately or as soon as you can. And I think at every step of the way, I've brought up issues as and when they've come up. And You know, I think the thing with supervisors as well is that they're not all black and white. This particular supervisor, my relationship with him in the beginning was great. In the middle, it got bumpy. And then we had someone else mediate for us. And then he was more understanding of issues and more understanding of realistic timelines. And we weren't best friends, but we knew how to work together well enough for me to get done with my PhD. I think the only thing I might want to sort of tell myself, tell the version of me that was writing my PhD is to kind of learn how to draw that boundary between myself and my supervisor as just professional colleagues and that I don't need, it's not my responsibility to sort of keep him happy and impress that person on every other front when everything else in my life is kind of falling apart. That's a tricky one, isn't it? And I think it comes back to something that's always in the guide, in the guidance as well is about having plans which are written down, documented with dates alongside these things. So you can raise these, you know, so if you're not falling behind, this is a perception rather than a reality. Or if you need a week to go away and do something, you can show on your plan that, it's it's not going to affect you. This is how things are going. Barbara, what 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 do you think? What would your be a view on that situation? I like Prana. I think I wouldn't honestly. I, there's not much I could. I, I I've gone over this and over this in my head prior to this podcast. I don't know what I would have could have done differently. I too brought up the issues with the actual person who I had the issues with, and with other people. And um, I think if I had gone a more severe route, I would have lost the teaching opportunities that I did have at that university um, that he ultimately was had to sign off on. Um, and those teaching opportunities looked really good on my CV. So I, I don't know. I, I had to sacrifice one area to support another area of my professional development in this scenario. And I wasn't going to give up supporting my, my development as a teacher um, and, and as an academic colleague in a department that has a very insular kind of quality to it. So I don't know there's a lot that I would have done differently. Um, I'm really, um, I, I agree with also with Prana's drawing those boundaries and realizing it's a professional relationship. And also to remember that you are in a PhD program for a reason. You were picked for a reason. Um, you are, you get rid of that imposter syndrome, which gets accentuated and, and exacerbated by these kinds of situations, because you think, why is this person not interested in me? Is there something about the quality of my writing? Um, 
Um, English is my second language. At some point that even came up uh, in one of the meetings, uh, which, which really uh, uh, threw me back on my heels a little bit. So remember you're in that program for a reason and you do have the resources within yourself to write that dissertation and do that research and do that analysis or you wouldn't be there. So um, um, trust that, trust that and, 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 and dig in and find the process. And Claire, just thinking about both the situations here, what, I mean, yeah, you were quite fortunate that you didn't have that. I'm sure everything wasn't always perfect all the time. You must have had some kind of, you know, highs and lows uh, along the way. But what, what would you do in that situation, do you think, where, where somebody's kind of not being particularly helpful, that, that they are talking to you, but what they're saying to you isn't necessarily always positive. They're, they're mostly you know, giving you this negative view and, and you, you're finding it quite hard to impress them. I guess that's quite a tricky one. From my own kind of personal experience in life, I've always tried to kind of go off with like, do you ever kind of, it didn't really happen in my PhD, but with like my colleagues or like other students and just kind of discuss what's been said, kind of try and remember that is, although your PhD feels like your life, like just try and keep it in perspective and like have a laugh about it. And then hopefully on Monday, you'll feel more positive and can go in and kind of kind of tackle the problem head on. Um, that would be- when, when- where did you go? I mean, did you surround yourself? I mean, were you, where did you go? Who did you talk to when you, you know, where did you go for help and advice? Probably just like my, like students and colleagues around me. So people who were in similar experiences. Um... Your, so you turned to your peer group, because I know in these situations, kind of family are great, but they don't necessarily understand the circumstances. They care about you, but they don't really understand the you know, the hierarchy, the makeup, the, the politics of it. Um, so you kind of turn to your PhD buddies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, occasionally, not during my PhD, but I'd moan it to my parents and you're right, they just wouldn't grasp the nuance. Another common problem that came up from the messages I received was a supervisor that was rather overbearing, that didn't allow them to grow within the role. They kind of gave them they had weekly meetings and came out with a set of instructions and really treated their student like an employee, like another research assistant, rather than somebody who was growing within their own right, which I know, I think sometimes can be quite a nice warm space to be in during the first six, 12 months, kind of particularly if you're transitioning from a very structured MSc, finding your own feet in a PhD, which is a podcast we did a little while ago, but then a great supervisor would allow you to grow within that role and then eventually set you free and you'd follow your own route, right? What, what do you think, did anybody have a problem where they, their supervisor was more instructive? Nobody did. What would you do then in that situation? But let's, Prina, let, uh... I don't know, I'm just thinking about it as you're saying it. No, I think, like you said, I definitely had a lot more supervision and more instruction in the first year than I did in the third, where I was sort of allowed to grow and express my ideas and talk about where I wanted to be as a researcher. Um, 
But I think it would have been, I don't think I would have been able to be trained as a PhD candidate ideally should be at that stage as a researcher, because at the end of the day, regardless of where in the world you're doing it or what you're doing your PhD on, it is the, it's supposed to be a base for you to eventually become an independent researcher, right? It's supposed to be a place for you to learn how to sort of innovate, how to think creatively, how to learn the skills that you don't have. And if I had someone who was restrictive on those fronts and didn't really let me grow, didn't let me make some of the mistakes I need to make to actually learn from them, um, I wouldn't have gotten everything out of that PhD that I should have. I don't know if that answers the question, but I'm not really sure what I would have done in that case. No, I I think it does. I mean, I, I, I spoke to somebody... Again, this is all people messaging on Twitter who who explained a situation where they almost conducted their own research entirely in private as a secondary secret project. So they did what their supervisor asked. I don't know. That wasn't you, was it, Barbara? <laughs> no, I was going to say that's what I would do. I mean, maybe that's just a sign of who I am. I mean, that's what I had to do, not in private. I just had to do it all myself. I think I would do that if I was overly supervised. I'd just start conducting my research in private. I mean... That that's, but that's so maybe says more something about me than you ask questions. And again, I think Matt maybe <clears throat> comes back down to match. I think there are some people who kind of want a supervisor who is very present, very there all the time, very interested. There's a balance, isn't there, here between somebody who actually covers your everything you send them in red ink and sends it back again to the person that just never even replies. There's there's got to be somebody in the in the you know. It, it, it makes me wonder, Adam, and I don't, again, this would be a survey question, but it would be nice and it should be probably part of PhD programs where you interview your potential, you, you're required to pick three people or something out of the faculty that you think might be of interest to you, where you have a set of interview questions that address these things. You know, what is your work ethic, what's your work ethos around, you know, um, writing and research or whatever the thing would be and and suss these things out before that relationship is sealed in the ego ego world of academia i i don't know but that seems like not that that's an answer to your question either but gosh well and it's it's i suppose it's nice to have hindsight but i guess for anybody who's listening to this who's early on in early enough to do something about it would one solution to always have always have two supervisors never just have one because you're kind of spreading your odds then you know you kind of spreading the bet if one turns out to not be the best match then the turn to the other one plus as well i think one of the supervisors is likely to keep the other one you know if i think it's quite hard for one person to ignore you if one of them's always responding and mm. and so if you are facing a difficult time right now you're kind of a 18 months in uh considering whether you approach your supervisor and find a reason not Hey, you're a rubbish supervisor. Would you mind if I added another one? That <clears throat> might not be the, I don't know. It depends on the person, but maybe finding another reason to suggest bringing somebody else on board saying, Hey, it's great. But my, uh, my thought process is now going slightly down another track. I know that's not your main field. I wondered if I could take on another supervisor or a mentor. I mean, 
I think mentoring here could be great too. I mean, ideally your supervisor would. Actually, should your supervisor be your mentor or should you always have a, an independent mentor? Claire, Joan, you, what do you think on that one? That's a interesting question. So um, I'm just thinking, because I recently applied for the Alzheimer's Society Fellowship, which is a junior fellowship, and they make you actually have a personal mentor who's separate from anyone on your um, research team, um, which I think is quite a nice idea. Um, but then during my PhD, I'd say like supervisor and mentor were really the same thing. But I think it's a good idea to have like someone separate. What do you think, Barbara? I think it would be, uh, I, it's hard to even imagine, honestly, to have a mentor. Um, I mean, that's what my grad student, fellow grad students were. They were my mentors. I, I couldn't, because of my, my experience, that that would have that would have not been really possible because of the way that the faculty interacted yeah. with each other. They, um, I mean, a good mentor yeah. won't solve your problems for you, will they? But they will. No, but help. They, they they did they help. Will. They did help. Yeah, they I mean, help. they'll talk. They'll talk through, help you devise strategies. So, I mean, one of the main takeaways we're going to tell everybody at the end of this podcast is: is please don't kind of suffer through this alone and sit there quietly and you know worry about this you addressing communication is key to this and addressing the problems that exist and if you have a mentor because I can see not everybody wants to go because another question here is is where do you turn when things do go wrong you know do you go to HR do you go to the head of the faculty do you go (laughs) to chaplaincy or do you go to the advisory service an earlier step before that was if you had a mentor on your side, somebody independent, I think it's important to have somebody to talk to that isn't a peer and who is confidential and can help you straighten out your own head as to what's going on. You know, I remember reading on Twitter just a few days ago, I don't know who said this anymore, but they said, when you start a PhD, it seems to be sort of the standard expectation that you expect your supervisor to be your mentor as well and your only mentor but don't there's actually no need to just stick to that one standard go out there and find yourself other mentors and this could benefit you not only in helping you solve issues with your supervisors but also in terms of just getting I guess, access to other resources in case you don't want to stay in academia any longer, in case you want to pursue other routes, in case you want to have conversations about other fields that are sort of related to the research you're doing, but not directly in it. So yeah, I think having a mentor who is not your supervisor, potentially having more than one, might actually really work in your favor. Yep, I I completely agree I'm conscious of time so I'm going to try and run through this next kind of 10 minutes or so quite quickly we had a another scenario where I know I mentioned this at the start where the supervisor was new and this was the first person they'd supervised but also uh, a second issue was when the student wasn't a PhD student in their 20s but was somebody who was a mature student and we had two different issues here is One, the new supervisor in this instance didn't really know what to do either. And it wasn't that they were deliberately bad, but they didn't receive no training. Um, 
So any supervisors that are listening to this, just try to be good. I mean, try to be good and decent and listen. And if there is some training available to you, go seek it out. Go talk to people. Um, communication seems to be so important to all this relationship. Being able to talk about the problems openly and come up with solutions is so important. But did, did any of you have a new supervisor? Were they quite fresh? Barbara, you're y shaking your head. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. And I was also, quote, the mature, which I have heard also is non-traditional student, um, the mature PhD student. I was the oldest person in my program. Um, yeah, my advisor was new um, and uh, dropped into the program as, like I said, this sort of star. And um, a lot of people, I was assigned to him as a new, as you would be, or in our program, you just got assigned a, a PhD advisor and he was brand new. Um, so, but quickly acquired advisees uh, as I went along. So I maybe was one of his first, but that didn't last long. Um, maybe, I mean, if your supervisor is new, I mean, don't avoid a new supervisor because I think potentially no. a new supervisor could be great because could they be. could, they might be the best, best one because they really care and they want to make a success of their first, you know, student that they're supervising, but maybe Absolutely. Set, set up a system where you're both feeding back and recognizing that they're learning to yeah. um, send them things to look at. The mature student thing's an interesting one because, um, when I've spoken to a couple of friends, what they found is, is that the, the supervisor assumed a greater level of knowledge just because their student was the same age as them, or hmm. they, they just assumed, oh, they must, have the, they must have it together. They must know these things purely based on age and experience. I mean, I, I certainly could see that being the case. I don't think that was the case in my, in my instance, because um, my particular advisor had a reputation that um, ultimately lost him a lot of advisees that was similar to mine. So in my case, I don't think that was so much so, no. but I can see that being certainly, uh, uh, and especially somebody who's already written like a thesis um, for a master's program, let's say they were at some terminal master's program, then went on to get their PhD. I could certainly see that influencing somebody's advising sort of. We've talked about some serious issues so far. Of course, there are those terrible ones where somebody is abusive or there's misogyny comes into play. Um, there's some of the messages I've received about um, inappropriate kind of messages late at night from supervisors and things like that. I think, of course, that's clearly never acceptable. Claire, I mean, do you jump straight down the form? Do you just immediately go down the formal route? I mean, it's, it's not great that things like this even happen. Um... But I think in the ideal situation, you should kind of clearly pick it up as soon as possible and say, like, that's not acceptable behaviour, um, either directly to them or go to someone higher up. And I think it's good to kind of record exactly what was said or what was done um, when it happened. In cases I've heard that are similar to this, when people then kind of make, kind of take it to someone higher up in the university, having a kind of record is actually really useful. Um, and often it turns out that lots of people have had similar experiences, same person. Along with this podcast, we'll put some resources and links to places that you can turn to for independent advice and somebody to talk to. Uh, Prina or Barbara, did you have any thoughts on that before we move on? 
Well, that was not going to be the situation with my advisor. Um, that didn't, none of that was ever an issue. However, um, I do know people that went through things like this. And I think having those professional resources on campus um, that are outside of the department, which we had at our university, are really key support systems to manage that. But I think also being able to say um, those comments make me uncomfortable. That is not an attack. It's a uh, it's an observation about the comment itself. I'm a communication studies major. I teach this stuff. So um, that would be one of the first things I would advise. Um, rather than you make me uncomfortable, that comment makes me uncomfortable is a very good strategy to um, identify the, the discourse that's, that's, not, um, that's not professional in that moment and keeping a record, absolutely keeping a record. And you should anyway, all emails that you have between you and your um, your chair, you should be having a right, you should hold on to those, don't delete and them. Having made that position clear, do you think then you should kind of give it a chance? Should you try to go back to how it was before? You make it unclear, and then if they don't get the message, or if they, they suddenly become more hostile off or talk to you less or become less helpful towards you because you, they've been rejected... I think being able to kind of set that aside and move on, but be prepared to deal with it if it doesn't. I think it's a very difficult, and it's difficult precisely because there's nuances and degrees um, in these kinds of conversations. And there's also uh, people who, and this is for me, you know, other, other people would have to think through this differently based on their experiences and what they're going through. But if it's somebody who I presume is careless with their, with their words, uh, maybe is generationally not as aware um, and I make that comment, uh, and, oh, sorry, I'm old school, which is something I've heard before. Sorry, I haven't, I, I'm sorry, just that's the way I talk. Well, it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, then, then that's, I, I'm not going to go on and report. I, no. I don't for me personally, but if it's something pervasive, um, then I, again, that record keeping, and I would go to an outside resource outside the department. If you do address it, realize that it could change the dynamic. But then this, that's the problem, isn't it? Because people are worried about it changing the dynamic so they don't address it and then actually that ends up being worse. Like uh, Barbara said and I think with different issues there there are a lot of nuances I mean for example if someone if I was talking in a meeting with someone or talking to let's say someone who is a white male who made a random blanket statement about brown people and I said, actually, what you've said is very inappropriate. It, that statement makes me uncomfortable. It might just be a question of the person being ignorant of what could be offensive to someone. And if that person says, oh, I'm sorry that I hadn't realized that would, you know, come off to you like that, that is a different thing. But if I'm in the room with someone who is texting me late at night, who is, you know, making sending me messages that are not necessarily advances, but that are making me comfortable and they continue to do so, um, it becomes a very tricky situation for me to say, do I want to report this? Because there's nothing in those screenshots for me to actually report per se, but it is making me uncomfortable. With regards to speaking out about it, I think if you can speak out, you should speak out. And especially because of what you just said, um, not everyone is 
equally comfortable being confrontational. Not everyone is always in a position to be able to confront someone. So I think the more people, I mean, there's strength in numbers, right? The more people that start talking about it, the more courage you give others to also slowly open up about your issues because plenty of other people could have faced the same issues, but they might not be the first ones to speak about it. So you might not always be in a position to speak about what's happening with you. And I think that is something we must acknowledge because of power dynamics. But if you can't speak about it to whoever you can, please do. Yeah. And I want to jump on, sorry, Prenena, I just want to jump on that, that, that um, you are, if it's a predator, if it's somebody who's predatory, quid pro quo kind of person, um, you're likely not the first person and, and you're likely not the only person. So this kind of finding strength in numbers is really important if you feel like you can't speak out on your own. Um, and if it's those, those strange texts late at night, um, what I've done uh, in the past, which I actually had a very similar situation to exactly that, I just didn't respond to those text messages and, uh, until the following day during an appropriate time said, wow, I, I can't believe you were texting me so late at night last night, yeah. by the way, blah, blah, and just not, just not responding. And it actually put a stop to it. But that's not to say that always works, but strength in numbers is so that, important. That, that's a really good point. Don't reply uh, in, in the even you know, kind of wait until it is an appropriate time. I completely agree. Um, any final thoughts before we finish? I just, just want to reiterate, you're not alone. You're in the program for a reason. Um, hang in there and uh, make friends with your fellow grad students. They're your great resource. Great point. Rina? Yeah. Um, if you have the chance, <clears throat> definitely recce your supervisors before you start. Talk to old grad students, talk to current grad students, talk to your supervisor over Skype, and just do a preliminary check before you actually start out your PhD journey with them. And like Barbara said, have plenty of support systems built around yourself. I keep this very quick. I would just say, put things on the table straight away, kind of what you want to get of your PhD um, and hopefully kind of start building a good relationship early. Thank you very much to today's panelists, uh, Claire, Barbara, um, Rina. Uh, please remember, don't go through this alone. Do reach out. Uh, if you're experiencing any problems or uh, details on the Twitter accounts of all our guests and our email address and contact details are in the text along with the website. We also have a WhatsApp community, which is very supportive. Huh. Please do consider joining that. We have socials for early career stage PhD students on a, every other Monday. Um, it's a very supportive group who uh, there's no judgment. And if you have problems, just join one of those every other Monday and come and have a chat with us. It's a useful thing right now while people are in lockdown because of COVID, et cetera. Uh, we have profiles on all today's panelists on the website, including details of their Twitter accounts. And if you have anything to add on this topic, please do tweet us using the hashtag ECR Dementia uh, or do comment on the post or leave a reply below. Thank you very much, everybody. And uh, I hope you'll uh, join us on the show again uh, another time. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.